Well, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, depending on where you are in the world and what time it is when you're tuning in. This is Perrin Desports, and I'm your host for the Group Practice Accelerator podcast from Polaris Healthcare Partners. If you're an entrepreneurial dentist or other healthcare provider, and you're interested in building a successful group practice, you found your primary resource for some of the industry's best education. My partner, DeWalker Sinha, and I have decades of experience helping people just like you launch, scale, and exit successful group practices. In short, we create clarity, confidence, and results. Well, welcome to episode six, and this is the third episode in a three-part installment around the M&A markets and the decision around whether or not to sell your business. I know you're going to get a lot out of today's episode and you definitely want to take notes. I'm going to be joined by two professionals from the Ide Bailey accounting firm. Mel Schwartz is the director of legislative affairs in Washington, D.C., and Scott Haberman is a partner at Ide Bailey and leads the group dental practice segment of their business. These two guys are going to have a pretty thorough conversation around tax laws, potential tax changes, tax incentives to continue growing your business and not necessarily just selling it, and an overview from where we stand in Washington, D.C. from a legislative context right here, right now, today. I know you're going to get a ton out of it, so come prepared, come ready, come caffeinated, brew another cup of that awful Keurig coffee, and get ready to roll. The Group Practice Accelerator podcast is live and on the air. Once again, thanks to everybody in the audience for joining me. This is Perrin Desports, and I'm your host for the Group Practice Accelerator podcast. And as I said in the introduction, I'm joined on the podcast by two titans of industry, if you will, from an accounting firm that we work very closely with called Ide Bailey. Mel Schwartz is the Director of Legislative Affairs, and Scott Haberman is a partner at Ide Bailey and works predominantly with group dental practices. They're going to be joining me on the podcast today as we talk through the uh, fervor and a lot of the comings and goings in the sell-side market for a lot of our prospective clients out there. This is a very unique time that we find ourselves in as it relates to M&A. Uh, And there are a lot of comings and goings. And I think between Mel and Scott, they're going to give us a lot of insight and frankly, a lot of things to consider as we all make decisions moving forward. Mel and Scott, thanks so much for joining me today. You want to say hello to our audience? Hey, everybody. Thanks for uh, thanks for having us, Perrin, and uh, happy early Father's Day weekend to all the all the dads out there. Yes, indeed. All uh, happy Father's Day and uh, looking forward to our discussion today, Perrin. Yeah, thank thank you, Scott. Thank you, Mel, for uh, for joining me. Um, this has uh, been a podcast I've been looking forward to uh, for a good little while now because I think the the pace of information is I think what we would all consider to be fast and furious. Uh, and just as a uh, disclaimer of sorts up front, we are recording this on uh, Friday, June the eighteenth, a couple of days before Father's Day, and I think Mel will probably tell us on several instances that things change really quickly in Washington. So depending on where you are and when you're listening to this, we could all end up uh, working for the Chinese by that time or something. So things things happen quickly, and uh, the information will be uh, accurate as of today's time and date stamp. So we um, uh, it, it Polaris. 
we've done, DeWalker and I have done a couple of our podcasts um, around the M&A markets and different subject matter related to that. Those of you who've been listening for a little while probably listened to the prior two podcasts, and you'll know that this is the third in a series of, uh, of three where we're talking about group practice transactions. And we talk a lot about deal structure, uh, and, and most often when we do, we're talking about uh, the amount of cash versus an earnout versus potentially an equity role and what all that means uh, in terms of value and valuation. Uh, but we're also going to talk a bit more today about allocation of the purchase, purchase price, assets, and goodwill and how that translates into a potential tax impact. Um, we really find ourselves at a unique point in time. And I, I've started referring to this as the perfect storm. And the reason for that is multiple fold uh, and in no particular order of importance. You've got a lot of business development people that work for enterprise level DSOs and private equity groups that were literally forced to sit on the sidelines last year. Uh, they get paid to do deals. They have bonus and incentives about transaction values and amount of EBITDA acquired and things like that, where they are heavily motivated and highly vested uh, to do transactions. And when you can't play in the game that you specialize in for half of the year, it makes it really, really difficult to hit your goal. Nobody's ratcheting down a goal to compensate for, for less time. The goal is what the goal is. If you hit it, great. If you don't, due to lost time, well, that's kind of a you problem. So now we have a lot of business development people that are highly motivated to make up for lost time. They want to get deals done this year because through no fault of their own, they weren't able to last year. And so you've got a, a lot of people that are that are uh, full uh, full gas forward to get deals done. Most of the private equity groups and uh, certainly enterprise level DSOs use debt leverage to get transactions done. That means they they're using some type of debt funding in addition to the equity that they put into transactions to grow their businesses. And we all know that debt funds by and large are still relatively inexpensive right now. I know the Fed is forecasting to increase rates, um, you know, maybe multiple times by the end of 2023, but that's still a good ways off. And, and we don't anticipate any of that necessarily happening before the end of this calendar year. So, so debt's pretty cheap and it's pretty available right now. So you've got a, a low cost of funds and an abundance of them. And then the third piece that everybody is talking about and so many people are wrapped around the axle on is this looming tax law change and potential impact to everyone, highly compensated individuals, business owners, people who have built successful businesses who are thinking about selling those businesses. And I understand that there are people out there that have successful businesses and now is the right time to do a transaction for all the right reason. But judging from what we're hearing from the marketplace, it's our opinion at Polaris that there are a lot of people that are simply following the herd and, and basically entering into a process to make a life-changing decision without all the facts that might not end up being in their best interests personally or financially. I won't spend much more time on my soapbox, but you probably get where I'm coming from here. And I think from Scott's perspective and Mel's perspective, we're going to get a nice 360 degree view of some of the implications of all this and a few different ways to think about it. So as we start the discussion, guys, um, 
Yeah, and Scott, I'll probably let you take the lead on on this one here. Let's do a little bit of educating and and share some considerations that maybe aren't being talked about by a lot of sell side advisors who may be working directly with with the entrepreneurial dentist who's built a group, but they haven't involved their CPA yet to to really understand the the significant impact uh, that tax uh, the current tax law could make on a transaction, even if it were to happen this year. Do you want to share some insight into s- some different ways to consider that? Sure, absolutely, Perry. And that's, yeah, it's a great factor to consider. And, and as you and I always talk about, don't let the tax tail wag the dog. But we got to understand the ramifications of, of what selling your practice could do um, and what you could be looking at for the tax bill. Um, and, and I think what a lot of folks gloss over is the purchase price allocation. I think they're so worried about, okay, what's the, what's the sale price of the practice? Um, you get lost and you don't get into the details of, well, let's, let's look at that allocation. Let's determine what's, what's the best a split out of goodwill and, and hard assets uh, to throw into that, uh, into that deal. And so that's a that's a pretty big deal because when you're selling hard assets, you have what's called a depreciation recapture. So under Code Section 1245, which I'm sure every listener out there uh, knows uh, through and through, uh, internal internal revenue code, uh, you're required to recapture previous depreciation that you've taken on those hard assets. So every doc out there uh, is advised by their CPA, let's let's take bonus or 179 on uh, the, the purchase of fixed assets to, to lower your current tax liability. Well, uh, when you go to sell your business or sell that asset, uh, you'll have to recapture that depreciation that you take in at ordinary income tax rates. And so that's something to, to be aware of when you're, when you're negotiating with a potential buyer of your enterprise. Um, and so you know, in most deals we see, it's between 80% goodwill, 20% uh, hard assets, which includes all your, all your equipment in the offices. Uh, so that's where we're typically seeing it. But you can negotiate that more towards goodwill, but it's going to affect the, uh, the, the sale price of your practice more than likely. And so just being aware of that and, and how much that plays into the deal and why you need to get your tax advisor on the phone as you're negotiating, just so you can model out, okay, what's my, what's my hit here if I do sale my practice? Uh, you know, how, does the, how does the earn out uh, affect me as well? Um, and, and, and is there some kind of installment agreement where I get cash over a number of years and, and how is that cash taxed over years? Um, so maybe you don't get the cash all up front. And if we have these looming tax changes that come down the pike, well, if you're collecting that cash after these tax changes uh, take, into, take, uh, take effect, which Mel and I will talk about a little bit later, well, Who's to say that the cash you're receiving later on isn't impacted by those ordinary income tax rates if we have those those changes? So there's a lot of things at play, a lot of modeling. Uh, I always warn my clients uh, about uh, paralysis by analysis. You don't want to model out 80 different scenarios and uh, just start spinning your wheels and not be able to make a decision. But being aware of big level picture of, okay, let's get some ballpark numbers here. What's your recapture rate? What's the money we're leaving on the table by all these incentives that are sitting out there by Washington after the three major tax law changes over the last 
gosh, 14 months or so that you could infuse a ton of cash in your practice to really grow without funding it with debt. Uh, so you know, a lot of a lot of uh, enterprises out there grow by using leverage, right? Uh, you don't want to be too over leveraged uh, because banks potentially won't lend to you. And so there's a lot of cash out there that could be had by uh, capturing you know, what's called the employee retention credit, research and development credit, uh, primarily that I think a lot of docs are unaware of um, and haven't explored fully. And so uh, there's a lot of factors at play right now. And uh, I, I think that just being aware of what's out there on the horizon is, is helpful for making that decision to either keep on uh, going down that path of increasing your value and your business, or you know, maybe now is the right time to sell. Yeah, e- excellent point. And I think, Scott, what you dovetailed into there is, uh, is part of the, the challenge, if you will, um, and, and candidly part of the frustration from mine into Walker's lens. And that is that when we, when people call us, prospective clients call us for, let's call it a second opinion on what they should do. And we look at some of the analyses that are um, performed by uh, some of the sell-side advisors in the marketplace, they really amount to what I would consider a static analysis. And, and the analysis has one variable and the one variable is tax. You know, sell today versus sell next year. And these are businesses in motion, you know, and they're, if, if it were that simple, if it were binary, then anybody could probably figure it out. But to your point, you know, bringing in a, a tax advisor to, to run the numbers, to give some, you know, probability distribution around a lot of different factors, and then to be able to take a step back and say, okay, where is my business right now? What do I do really well? What are the areas of potential growth? Are there some tax incentives that could facilitate that? Do I have competitive advantage in the local marketplace? And should I press that advantage? Because if I can continue the growth trajectory that I'm on, the likelihood is that in a year or two, my business is going to be bigger, better, more profitable. And if there are fewer businesses to be transacted because they all get transacted this year, then the laws of supply and demand also work in in my favor. Business development teams in private equity groups or enterprise level DSOs are not going to shut the doors at the end of this year. They may spike the football and have a great year, but they got to do deals next year too and the year after that. So if you build a great business and there are fewer of them and you can continue to grow that business, you could... Tax tax results could be the least of your worries in another two years, and it may look dramatically different. So I think it's it's a, a really good way of saying, look, don't don't consider don't make your decision around one variable. Try to consider all variables and make the best decision at the right time for you. So speaking of considering all the variables, our our local Washington reporter who lunches with Dan Rather and Tom Brokaw and you know, some of those other people, I'm sure, knee to knee at uh, the expense account lunch restaurants for three martinis and everything. It's Mr. Mel Schwartz. Mel, do you want to take it from the top and give us, um, <laughs> as as of June the 18th at 1139 Eastern, what the current state of affairs is in Washington for all sure, of us? Sure, And <clears throat> excuse me, I think the only uh, only term you can use right now is that state of affairs is confused. Uh, neither party really knows how they want to proceed. Uh, The most likely 
outcome, especially with, with regard to uh, tax legislation this year, is that it seems likely to be put off until later in the year. Uh, there is a lot of movement towards uh, going ahead and doing some sort of bipartisan infrastructure legislation. Now, legislation that will not include any sort of tax manipulation, tax changes uh, at all. Uh, even the idea of indexing the gasoline tax seems to now have been have been rejected. You know, the uh, while the leadership of both parties uh, probably would prefer not to allow taxes and infrastructure to be separated. Uh, the, uh, the rank and file are always interested in bringing a little bacon back home. And certainly this is the, traditionally has been the best way to bring bacon back home to, to your constituents. And it, that's a tough thing for them to pass up. So the, uh, uh, the fact is that that's likely to crowd out tax discussion, probably until uh, they're threatening sometime during the summer, but it looks more, more like September, October would be, uh, be the dates that we would see consideration uh, of any kind of tax changes. Now, there's some very significant tax changes that the president has put on the table. Uh, whether those uh, become enacted, what the effective dates of those are, what the details are, uh, are all subject to a great deal of change between now and whenever it comes up. And that actually leaves out also the question of, are these things even going to make it? Uh, we could easily have the same tax code next year that we have this year. And uh, I think anyone who tells you differently uh, is, uh, is not leading you down the right path. There is way too much uncertainty. The Democratic majorities are way too thin in Congress uh, in order for some of the items that have been included in the president's budget package to, to move forward. And, you know, I guess since we're talking about uh, sales of businesses, uh, really the, the most important one to consider there is uh, the question of what's going to happen with regard to capital gains. Now, the proposal on the table is to increase the tax rate on capital gains in excess of one million bucks to the ordinary rate, wherever that ends up, uh, and to include the additional 3.8% uh, tax. Now, which is a, the Medicare equivalent that applies to, to, to higher income or to non-salary higher revenue items. Uh, keep in mind, one thing to keep in mind here, and I think sometimes when I see projections done, uh, this is not kept in mind, that $1 million is not a cliff. So if you sell for 1.1, you have not, for a 1.1 profit, you don't fall off the cliff and tax the entire 1.1 at the higher rate under any of these proposals. You would still have the first million dollars at the current rate, 
And then only the additional 100,000 of gain would come forward and be taxed at the higher rate. So, you know, if, if you're selling for 37 million, okay, that doesn't make a whole lot of difference. If you're selling for 1.5, uh, that makes a huge difference. And uh, you readily want to make sure that if anyone is giving you a simple calculation, that that simple calculation in, includes that. Um, <clears throat> further, what happens to capital gains? It's not just a question of if, and it's very much an if question. We could, we could get to next year and we could get to a year after next year and not really see any material changes in the capital gains calculation. Uh, if we do see a change, uh, there's still a lot of questions. We don't know when, and we really don't know how much the change is likely to be. Uh, now, the proposal, the, the Biden's proposal was a, is already effective. I mean, if it were to be enacted, the proposed effective date goes back into April when they when the White House first floated the idea. The uh, so <laughs> there's no if that were to come about, there's no longer a race to sell because it's too late. Uh, I think most observers here in Washington think it is very unlikely that that April date will hold, that some later date is the much more likely date. Uh, potential items there are uh, if we saw, for instance, the Ways and Means Committee report a bill, the House Committee that handles taxes, report a bill out in September, uh, they might use the date that they report that bill out uh, as the effective date. They might push it to the end of the year. They could even push it farther than that. Uh, a lot of that debate is going, or a lot of that consideration is going to be determined by how much additional revenue do they raise for the government. And if you give people, the longer a lead time you give people to sell their business to recognize their capital gains, the more new revenue you bring into the treasury. And since given the, the current size of the budget deficit, that's going to be a significant part, uh, I think, of the debate. But it's not only when, it's also how much. Uh, we don't have any current uh, econometric work, but the traditional view has been that if what you want to do is maximize taxes, maximize money into the treasury, then the capital gains rate you need to have is 28% and not 41 point whatever the calculation is, is threatening to be. And the reason for that is since as long as you have the traditional rules regarding how estate taxes are assessed or it really how the property that is inherited gets a fresh start basis, a new step up in basis as of the date of death. Uh, so people who have particularly large capital gains uh, may choose simply to sit on them until they die, uh, at which point the tax collector gets nothing. Uh, now, embedded in the proposals is a proposal to change that and also uh, require a tax or require really a, yes, a tax at the date of death that would be, again, potentially subject to capital gains rate, which we don't know what they would be. 
but would be taxed at, at death so that you no longer have this lock-in effect. Uh, a great deal of, of pushing and shoving is going to go. There's going to be lots and lots of politics. Uh, I think really the best advice that anyone can give is keep your eyes open, see how things develop. Uh, and as uh, Perrin and Scott have said, don't let the tail wag the dog, uh, particularly when you're dealing with very unclear information, uh, situations that situations that could have changed even by the time uh, we're making this uh, we're making this broadcast. Um, but that is uh, that I think are, are really two key things that I would keep in mind. Now, none of these numbers, I'll come back to it, are a cliff. You get the first million dollars of gain at the old rules. It, it all we're talking, what we're talking about is gain above the $1 million figure. And now also keep in mind, if you're dealing with a multi-owner practice uh, that's truly operating as a multi-owner S corporation, is truly operating as a multi-owner partnership, it's not the total gain to the partnership or S corporation. It is each individual uh, members' share of that gain that we're going to measure against this one million dollar figure. Yeah, and, and and piggybacking off of that, if there's a substantial earnout on the deal, and the docs have to stay around, they're going to collect some more cash uh, via, and it's called an installment sale. Uh, you know, some of that capital gain could be spread out of, over a number of years, and so you know that could potentially lower. The chances of being impacted by that ordinary uh, rate, if you're over that one million dollar uh, uh, baseline, so so that's something that could be part of the negotiation if rates do change. Like, okay, let's look at an earnout, and maybe you'll make more money uh, down the down the road. Who knows? So, like Mel said, very very <laughs> hazy <laughs> hazy future. This is this is great information, guys, and I, I mean I'm I'm learning as both of you are speaking, and I know it's it's valuable to our audience. I mean I I think you know Mel hit one thing early in his his answer, um, uh, and it was a comment about the the razor thin margins of the the Democratic majority, and and you know regardless of where you line up on the aisle or who you vote for, or how you vote or anything like that. Um, how the sausage is made and the negotiations that that happen to corral votes and and get something passed. Um, I'm I'm glad I don't live anywhere near the the Beltway for sure, Mel. God bless you for all the work that you do. But you know, I think the again, if I go back to uh, the people that are kind of fanning the flames and creating urgency and and maybe maybe not disclosing all the different uh, key decision variables to this. They're just simply stating cap gains are 20 long-term cap gains are 20% right now. They're going to be somewhere between 39.6 and 44 and change when all is said and done. Sell now versus sell next year. And and the frustration on that is they're cherry picking one piece of it to to try to to drive people to make an um, uneducated or undereducated decision. Uh, the fact of the matter, like you said, Mel, is that if the Democrats got everything they wanted, if it was a dictatorship um, and it all came to pass just the way uh, President Biden wants, 
from April 1st up to now, anybody that has sold their business would be subject to all of that. That would be the first thing. The second thing, though, is going back to the, the negotiation part of it. The probability, the likelihood is that this thing gets watered down somehow. And if if it does get watered down and, and specifically the cap gains tax rates come back a little bit closer to to the mid-range or something from from where Biden planted the flag initially, then the decision to sell now versus sell later, be it next year or otherwise, is a lot cloudier because the tax impact is less. It's not as draconian. It's not as is, you know, all consuming, honestly, for somebody evaluating the sale of their business. And and the the sell versus grow or operate decision becomes one that that people really need to make sure they're making the right decision based around timing and transaction value for all the right reasons. And and I think if nothing more than what our audience gets out of listening to this this conversation today, and they probably don't get very much from listening to me, so I'll shut up in a second, but at least they need to engage more than one advisor to help them get guidance on making a really complicated decision with a lot of moving parts and pieces. Um, are, are there other aspects that y'all want to um, uh, tackle relative to this entire conversation, be, be they with specificity or just at a, at a high level relative to, to how somebody goes about making that decision or, or some of the questions that they need to ask of their advisors? And, and certainly it goes without saying that I'll, uh, I'll share, Scott, I'll, I'll share your contact information and the I. Bailey uh, contact information in the show notes with everybody as well. But any, anything else from your lens, guys, on the way somebody needs to kind of step up and, and um, you know, engage advisors around this? Well, I, I think uh, backing up a, a little bit to the reference point I made earlier about research and development credits and employee retention credits, uh, our, our, uh, our national tax office, we... We have a very large R&D team, so research and development team, that is tackling the employee retention credits as well for our clients. And at first blush, you know, most of our docs, they're not really eligible because we work with some pretty sophisticated business owner, uh, business owners out there that own multiple practices, and so they're running their practices really well, and they weren't impacted substantially as some of the sole practitioners last year. And so they may not think they meet uh, the qualifications for these employee retention credits, but you know, there's, there's, there's two ways to get these credits. One is black and white uh, revenue loss in comparison to a prior period. And then uh, method two is what's called a partial closure. Um, and so partial closure is a, is a pretty gray area and as I was talking to one of our R&D team members actually yesterday to, to kind of refresh on the rules is um, there is some guidance that was released by the IRS. I think it was March 1st, Mel, and correct me if I'm wrong, um, that laid out the interaction between the PPP round one and employee retention credits for 2020. And that gave us some guidance, but it wasn't absolutely clear guidance. Uh, there is reference to words as nominal. So how do you define nominal? Uh, they give some examples with percentages. Well, it still gives us, a, gives us a fair amount of wiggle room to capture some of these credits. And so as I mentioned, the R&D credit, uh, that's separate from the employee retention credit. And so 
if you haven't asked your tax advisor, and there's other firms out there that specialize in R&D credits, we have a, a, a pretty deep bench of R&D focused folks within our firm uh, that are looking at these for a number of our group practices because the numbers are large. It's not a revenue driven test. It's really a procedure driven test. What are you doing at your practice? If there's more complex procedures, implants, night guards, uh, ortho, surgery guides, so forth, you know, not just the, the crowns and bridges and, and, and filling cavities. Uh, so if you're doing more complex procedures and you have some technical equipment, maybe some 3D uh, modeling and so forth within your practice, which a lot of these group practices do, there's some substantial research and development credits out there on the table potentially for you to capture. And you can go back and amend a few prior years and catch up for some of those prior credits as well. And so not, it's not a one-time thing. It's a, every year you can reassess how much is my credit and how much could I potentially capture. And not only for federal purposes for IRS credits, but depending on what state you're in, there could be substantial state credits. So any West Coasters out there, I think California has a big R&D credit as well. Um, East Coast, you know, every state is different. So that's something to consider is those research and development credits to really influx more cash within your practice immediately. Uh, the second is that employee retention credit that I mentioned. So number one, uh, 2020, the credit was pretty limited and it was mutually exclusive from the PPP loans. So nine times out of 10 or 99 times out of 100 PPP loans made a lot more sense to go after than the uh, employee retention credits. Uh, but with the passing of the Consolidated Appropriations Act, uh, end of December by Trump, uh, that took away that rule of mutual exclusive, exclusiveness between those two programs. And so now our clients who took the PPP loans, PPP1 and PPP2, you can now capture this employee retention credit. It wasn't much in 2020. It was 5,000 bucks per employee in 2020 for the year. But now uh, it got bumped up to, with the passage of the last two laws, each quarter you are potentially allowed $7,000 credit per employee. And so you know, doing the math, you look at uh, 5,000 bucks for 2020. And if you're eligible all four quarters of 2021, oh, you're, you're not an accountant parent, but you're, you're smart enough <laughs> to do the math, right? That's $33,000 per employee, right? So if you have say 80 employees within your group practice, which isn't a, a huge group practice, it's a good size, uh, that's over a $2.5 million credit. Uh, granted, uh, the way to claim the credit uh, is, is amended payroll tax filing. So it's a, it's a payroll tax credit <clears throat> that you get refunded. And you gotta, you gotta file that uh, with the IRS and, 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 and those are a lot more slow going. So it's not an immediate influx in cash. It's gonna be probably months before you get that money in the doors. But if you're looking at bringing in 2.5 million into your practice, well, shoot. I could build out a couple more locations, right? Um, or acquire uh, a couple more locations to really build your enterprise up to where you really want it to be. Um, the, one, the one factor I want to I lay out there so everyone's aware is that credit is considered taxable income, essentially. Okay. So if you're at the highest tax rates, and you have state tax too, say it's about 40%. Well, you're looking at 60% of that 2.5 million you know, after taxes. So that's something to consider too. Those are, those are two big, big items that 
the group practices should really just be kicking the tires on and, and making sure that, uh, that they're, they're potentially you know, subject to getting this, this cash. And the government wants to give you this cash. Okay. They, they put it in the bills and they want the economy to keep on trucking along. Right. So I think it's something to be aware of. And if you're selling your business, well, okay, how are you going to, how are you going to get the cash if you don't have a business anymore? Right. You know, you mentioned uh, the PPP loans, the PPP program, Scott. And uh, since we're talking about selling businesses, uh, one thing that uh, unfortunately we have noticed sometimes is overlooked, there are very special rules. If you took a PPP loan, there are very special rules that deal with the transfer of business prior to the loan, because all the loans are going to be forgiven, right? We're going to do whatever is needed to forgive the loan. But that's a process, and it is a process that occurs over time. There's a special rule there that says, oh, by the way, if you transfer the business prior to the time that you have received approval of the uh, forgiveness of the loan, you need to put up a bond equal to the amount of the unforgiven, which could be the whole thing at this point, piece of the loan. Uh, and uh, that has come as a surprise uh, in more than a couple of deals that, uh, that we've seen really throughout different kinds of industries. So uh, if you were able to take a PPP loan, uh, we certainly hope that you did. We certainly hope that you will uh, eventually have it fully forgiven. But if it has not been fully forgiven yet, uh, make sure that you chat with your banker before uh, you do anything else with regard to transfer of the business. Great, great insight, great advice on on both of those points as as well as the entire discussion today. And I mean, I, you know, I'd be remiss if I, I didn't say that just listening to you two gentlemen in the depth and breadth of your organization and what I Bailey does and, and the resources that you can draw upon to, to give this type of guidance for your clients. Um, for, for those that are in our audience that are building and operating group practices who are, you know, working with the, the accountant they started with that, uh, that professional helps tax returns for hair salons and pizza parlors and whatever else. And Oh, by the way, they do dental too. Um, I think this really uh, is a testament to, to not only your organization, the two of y'all, but what it's like to work with a quality advisor that can bring a team uh, to, to give credible answers for very complicated situations. And if you're not working with the, the right accounting firm, then you're probably um, either leaving money on the table or, or doing yourself an outright disservice. So, um, gentlemen, I, I really can't thank you enough for your time. You're both busy guys. Um, and, and I know you've got a lot of uh, important stuff going on, but just carving out an hour of your time today with us is, has been phenomenal. And I know we're going to get a lot of good feedback from our audience. So thank you both, Scott, Mel, for, for joining me on the, the podcast today. Any parting words of wisdom or anything else you'd like to share before we wrap it up? Have a great weekend. Enjoy that Father's Day. Uh, don't let the tax tail wag the dog. You can tell that at your uh, Father's Day uh, gatherings. and. Uh, Thanks for thanks for having me, Perrin. I really appreciate Perrin, it. Thanks, thanks so much for having us on. And I guess uh, the, the the two best words, really, with regard to uh, anything that's happening in Washington, is 
don't panic because uh, we don't really know exactly what's going to happen. You know, keep an eye on things or have someone keep an eye on things for you. Uh, but don't assume that just because someone, even me, says something is going to happen, uh, it necessarily will happen, happen at the time, or happen in exactly the way that it's being floated. We've got a lot more to hear from, and uh, uh, the worst thing you can do is to panic into a um, unwise transaction simply because you're afraid of something that might happen uh, in the tax scene. Very, very well said. Mel Schwartz, Director of Legislative Affairs, Scott Haberman, partner at Ied Bailey for group practices, group dental practices. I can't thank you enough again for, for joining me today. I know that our audience is going to get a lot of educational information and content out of today's session. And, and I know that they're going to find a lot of ways to be able to apply the information that you've shared today, too. So for our audience, if you do have questions, uh, feel free to submit them to me directly at Perrin at PolarisHealthcarePartners.com. As I mentioned before, I'll link to Scott's contact information and that for Ide Bailey as well in the show notes. Be sure to stick around. We'll be right back with some additional thoughts and to wrap up the show. So before we wrap things up on today's episode, I want to refresh a, a press release that probably everyone has seen and, and read by now, which is that Polaris is the official key card sponsor of an industry-wide event. And it's probably going to be the first of the large-scale events that we've all come to know and love through the years. It's the Dykema DSO 8th Annual Definitive Conference. And joining me right now is the head of the Dykema DSO group, Brian Kaleo. Brian, thanks so much for being on for a couple of minutes today. Perrin, thanks for having me. Um, congratulations on your new venture, Polaris. And I do so much appreciate your support of our event. We Look, we appreciate being part of it. And, and I think I speak for the industry when I say we appreciate you guys pressing forward and actually having the thing. It's going to be great to be back with everybody under one roof, being able to celebrate with some people and see some uh, industry colleagues who we've only seen over Zoom over the last 12 months. This is a, uh, a huge conference for the industry, and it has been for a number of years. You've really been leading the charge on it. Like I said before, it's the eighth annual conference, uh, and this one is going to be at the Gaylord Rockies Resort and Convention Center right near the Denver airport. It's a huge and beautiful uh, facility. The dates on the event are going to be July 28th through the 30th. Like I mentioned before, we are the key card sponsor. So every time somebody pulls out their room key to get into their room, hopefully they're going to notice the Polaris uh, logo when they do so. Do you want to take just a second, Brian, and kind of uh, orient maybe our audience uh, and, and elaborate on the event itself? What all is going to be going on? What's made it such a great success in the past and, and, and really paint a clearer picture for everyone? Yeah, you know, this is our eighth year of the event. Maybe you might say it's seven and a half because it was virtual last year. But, but you know, it's the eighth year we've, we've done the event. It's really geared towards the middle market. I mean, exactly the type of folks that Polaris represents, the type of folks that Dykema represents. I mean, anybody from a small group owner, even some solo practitioners say they get a ton out of it, to, you know, folks from 
two offices, five offices, 10, 20, 30 offices. And then, of course, some of the larger organizations are there because they want to potentially explore synergies with the middle market group. But the conference has always been about the middle market. So if you're trying to evaluate what are my options in the marketplace, should I sell this year, next year, should I grow it myself? You know, if, if I only have one office, how can I be at five? If I've got five offices, how do I get to 15? How do I increase my EBITDA? How do I increase the value of my organization? What are the best operational practices, the best accounting practices, the best? How do I get lending? How do I get a credit facility in place? If I want to go to market, who can help me go to market? You know, that, that's what the conference is there for. Because as you know, Perrin, the biggest segment of our market is the middle market, is those folks anywhere from, you know, a few hundred thousand up to 20, 30, 40, 50 million dollars. That's the biggest segment of the market. You know, it's far bigger than the mega, you know, DSOs and the mega groups. And that's really who this uh, conference is for. And we're in our eighth year. Um, we've got, right before I jumped on, we have 950 people registered. Our previous attendance record was 850 people. So we're, we're over that now. I'm projecting somewhere in the neighborhood of 12 to 1300 people. Um, Mia Hamm, the gold medalist, World Cup uh, champion uh, soccer player is going to be our keynote speaker. In addition, we're going to have big fireworks display. We're going to have um, a concert under the stars. It's going to be just a wonderful event. It's about time, Perrin, that people are back together again in person. And I personally can't wait. And I, I'm just excited that Polaris is going to be a part of it in a really big way. Thanks so much. I, I will, I, you know, again, we appreciate everybody in the industry really appreciates y'all putting this thing on. And you know, leave it to Dykeman to do it at an A-plus level, too. The Gaylord, I've never stayed there, but I looked at it online when we registered and everything. It looks phenomenal. Denver, Colorado, in the summertime is the best-kept secret in the U.S., though I don't think it's really the best-kept secret you know, anymore. You know, Karen, it's a brand-new property. I mean, I feel bad for them. We're capitalizing. They opened it on January 1st of 2020. They opened the property, and then we all know what happened middle middle of March. So literally, they had this brand-new property that had to close down and you know, for two and a half months after it opened, but you know, now it's back in business. So we basically have a brand new property. We're going to be among the first, you know, major conferences to be able to be put on at this location. And Denver in July, I mean, you can't get any nicer than that. And there's views of the mountains in the background. I mean, this concert under the stars for those that are going to attend, I mean, you're going to be on this giant astroturf, you know, field, and there's going to be a conference. I mean, I'm sorry, a concert under the stars, and then you're going to see the mountains, and then we're shooting off fireworks. I mean, I can't even imagine how cool that's going to be. It's, it's going to be a welcome return to the, uh, to the summit convention conference type of a, uh, MO for, for the industry, for sure. And, and like I say, you guys do it first class and we're, we're really, um, honored to be a, a partner in it with y'all this year, uh, and, and grateful for that. So, uh, you know, you hit a lot of the highlights, um, for really what is the core audience for, for Polaris? It's that, entrepreneurial dentist that's got a handful of locations to a lot of locations. Almost all of our clients are pre-private equity, um, and, and they do enjoy attending a lot of these conferences. I think the real nice thing about the Dykema conference is that you, um, you have a blend of, a, of almost everything, 
right? It's not decidedly one segment of the market over another at the exclusion of one or the other, but the subject matter covers a really, really wide uh, array of topics. And, and you usually do have a, a handful of, I'll say, candid panelists, <laughs> which is always good when people don't pull any punches. Are there any that you'd like to highlight or topics maybe that you think some of the panels uh, panelists might be going into in terms of subject matter expertise? Yeah, there are so many. I mean, I'll get in trouble. I'm going to try a little bit. But, you know, if I skip somebody and they're listening to this, please don't hold it against me. All the content on the big stage is going to be awesome. But, you know, some that kind of strike me are best in class culture. I mean, you know how important culture is becoming for valuations, parent, best in class operations. Again, there's going to be segments on um, buy side. There's going to be segments on sell side. There's going to be segments on lending. There's going to be um, segments on the role, for example, artificial intelligence is starting to play and big data is starting to play in efficiencies and operations. So there's just so much stuff. And the other thing that, that I really just love about this conference, apart from the content, and I think there is great content on stage, but the other part that I really, really like is, you know, the networking. I mean, the networking at this event has always been unparalleled. We leave a lot of time for it so people can spend the time they need to network. And, you know, we get these questions, Perrin, and you do too, probably every day, like, you know, what is the difference between a strategic and a private equity group? Well, if you're on the floor at Dykema, I can take you across the room and you can meet seven or eight private equity groups and seven or eight strategic DSOs in about like 30 or 40 minutes. I mean, tr think about it, Perrin, if we tried to set up those meetings ordinarily. I mean, it might take us months to get all those introductions and meetings accomplished. You could do it in 30, 40 minutes. You know, if somebody said, look, I want a lender, we'll take you to one side of the room. I need a private equity group. Okay, go over here. I want to meet a strategic. Go over here. What's best uh, in class accounting, you know, practices? Come over here. Hey, who's going to represent me? you know, when I need to sell my organization. Okay, go over to this part of the room. So literally, I mean, in minutes, we can make those kind of introductions, you know, and the best thing is what if you said, look, I've got 12 offices and I've got these problems, you know, does anybody else have these problems? Yes, I can introduce you to four other people that have 12 offices from across the United States and you can sit and have a meal with them or go off to the side and sit, you know, sit in a little cubicle and exchange ideas or exchange, you know, um, sort of, uh, you know, thinking on, on how, how best to grow your organization. So those type of really special things happen at this event, apart from the content on stage. And we can do some things, parent in minutes that would take months, literally, if we were making introductions, you know, over Zoom or email or something like that. I'm so glad you brought that up because I was going to touch on the the networking aspect of it as well. I mean, it's, it is absolutely invaluable the time um, uh, and the opportunity that people have when they're in an environment like that to make connections that last a long, long time. Those connections don't end when the conference ends. And, and I think that if people go into it with the right mindset and being a little bit proactive and open-minded about it, they're going to get a, a tremendous amount um, out of it. And it, it, it's also a testament, candidly, to, to you and your team and the business that y'all have built and the way that you interface with so many different parties in the industry that you're able to bring all that together under one roof. So um, tip, tip of the cap uh, to you and kudos as, as if you needed. Um, so you mentioned that y'all are a little bit over 900 registrants uh, as of today when we're recording this. Uh, the event is July 28th through the 30th. 
So that's about six weeks away. We're recording this on uh, June the 14th, about six weeks away. Um, and uh, <laughs> if you're if you're at that number right now, and normally there's a mad rush to sign up, you know, three to four weeks before the the conference itself. I think the the opportunity for y'all to sell this thing out is is all but guaranteed, and it's probably going to happen uh, far in advance of July 28th when the conference itself opens. Do you want to tell people how yeah. they can register and where they need to go if there's still space available? Yeah, you know, there is still space available. You know, parent, I don't like sellouts. I mean, sellouts are nice and you can brag, hey, I sold out. But the way we've always viewed it at Dykema is, you know, a sellout means people that want to come maybe can't come. And, and I don't like that. So we've always had, you know, capacity that was far above what we thought we would get. Like in 2019, we had 850 people and I think our capacity was 1,200. It was a great event with 850 people. But, you know, we were nowhere near, you know, people could sign up the day of the conference and come. And I was proud of that. People could walk up still and come. This year, I think our maximum is like around 1,350, oh, wow. 950 now. So yeah, I mean, if somebody listens to this today, please go to dicomadso.com and by all means register. And I, you know, I think there'll certainly be time for a couple weeks to do it, but I feel like it's almost inevitable this year we're headed towards a sellout. You know, I don't even even particularly brag about that because I love to have as many people that want to come come. I don't want to say, hey, we're sold out. We got to close the door. You can't come. But I think given everybody's been locked up for a period of time, people can't wait to come out and do something. Denver is an incredible location in July and it's the first big event. I, I, I'm sorry to say almost, I think a sellout is inevitable. So I would say if you want to come, please go to dicomadso.com. You know, as soon as you can. There is room available right now, and there probably will be for a couple weeks, but I, I think we're headed towards a sellout. Yeah, I, I think um, just to, to drive home the point, these are, when we say sold out, we're, we're talking about capacity yes. constraints, nothing to do with COVID on, on this one. It is full throttle straight ahead with it. And, and I think you're, you're seeing that in the numbers, the way they continue to, to fall in. I will link to um, your group uh, in terms of website, as well as um, the website uh, for the conference itself and all the show notes and everything like that, and make sure that everybody has it. And I'll make sure that it's that it's in the press release that's going out and everything too. But Brian, this has been tremendous. You are an incredibly busy guy. I really appreciate uh, a couple of minutes of your time today. Again, we're we're super excited about being a sponsor on the event itself and looking forward to a, a great time together out in Denver. And rest assured, we will have you back on the podcast in the not too distant future uh, and allow you to go uh, really, really deep into all the subject matter expertise you've had that our, I know our audience will be the beneficiary of. Thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks, Perrin. Just an honor to be here and really looking forward to seeing you and everybody else in person in July at the event. You bet. You know we will. It'll be a great time. I hope uh, the audience today um, will be able to join us if you haven't registered already. Like I say, I will link to that in the show notes for uh, Brian and his crew and the event itself. And I hope that you continue to get um, great information out of our podcast. We do take a good bit of time with it. Uh, and we hope that the, the subject matter uh, is, is something that's readily applicable for you uh, in your business um, all, on, on all but immediate basis. 
If you like what you're hearing, please do leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And obviously, if you've got questions, feel free to submit them to me directly at Perrin at Polaris Healthcare Partners. I'll try to read and answer them on an upcoming episode. And of course, if you want to find out more about all of us and everything we do, you can go to our website at PolarisHealthcarePartners.com. Thanks so much for being a listener and a subscriber. We'll see you on the next episode.